How are you guys? It was a good Easter week here at Crossings. I know some of you don't go to Crossings, and that's great. I hope it was a great Easter at your church. It's just great to see Christ's name lifted up in our culture. And as, as hostile as our culture is, it's still Easter. You know, the whole world knows it's Easter, and that's a good thing. So we had a, we had a good Easter week here. So we've been off for a couple of weeks, but now we're going to cruise through the rest of the book of Acts. So let me say a prayer for us, and we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have to gather here to study your word. I pray that as we look at the history of those early believers, that we would draw those lessons for us because your kingdom is timeless and your methods are timeless and your truth is timeless. In Christ's name, amen. This next section, by the way, there's the question line. You can text questions during class and love to answer your questions because that means uh, you know, you're engaged, but also the kinds of things that you're seeing in the text. And also I have a real habit of just skipping over things. And so there are no questions that are too easy or too basic. I mean, Christianity is, is about those basic solid questions. We uh, are going to now turn, if you think about what we've done in the book of Acts, we've been through 15 chapters and you've seen the beginning of the church You've seen uh, persecution begin from the Jews in Judea, which is the area around Jerusalem, basically Israel. And then you've seen them scatter around. When they scattered around, they began to tell the good news to people who didn't grow up as Jews. And so they came to Christ. They were Gentile believers, meaning they're Christians. They believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, but they didn't grow up Jewish. That caused a real problem in the early church. And so it came to an a pinnacle in Acts chapter 15, where you had some of the Jewish Christians, not all Jews believed in Christ, but the ones that did, said, hey, because of their background, these Gentiles are so far from God, they're so unclean, unholy in so many ways that they probably need to be circumcised and start following the law of Moses, and then we'll let them be Christians. And so the, uh, that came into sharp uh, controversy in the early church because that so seemed to go against the idea of you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So they got together in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem conference. This was our last lesson. And so they came out and they said, no, you are saved by grace through faith. You don't have to be a Jew to become a Christian. But there are certain things that we're called upon that, you know, just to get along, they're going to ask the Gentiles to do certain things, avoid food sacrifice to idols and avoid certain other things. And you can look at that in chapter 15. And so they sent a letter saying, look, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. And we're sorry about the people that told you did, but that's not what Jesus taught. But here are some things we'd ask you to do because of their sensibilities. And so the church survives this potentially very divisive action. Well, Acts now turns to looking at Paul and there are other things going on. All the other apostles are scattering out too. For example, tradition says Thomas went off to India and Philip went off into Africa. But Acts follows Paul because it follows the spread of the gospel out into the civilized world. The gospel is going to explode into the Greco-Roman world. Paul is going to talk to people that not only didn't grow up Jewish, They've heard of that Jewish God, but they're actively worshiping other gods. And so it's interesting to see how the gospel impacts that. Well, he's back in Antioch and Syria. Big church there in Antioch and Syria. A lot of Gentiles, some Jewish Christians, but they're all Christians and they're learning how to be Christians together. Paul and Barnabas had taken a little missionary journey, a short one, and they came back. And they're getting ready. Paul says, let's go back and see how the churches that started are doing. And that's where our story opens at the end of chapter 15. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preached and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, the young man who went with them a little bit on the first trip, but then he turned back. He's like, whoa, this is way too hard of going. I'm going back home. I think I hear my mom calling. And so, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and uh, had not continued in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Paul and Barnabas parted company. Barnabas took John Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas. He's another uh, 
he's a Roman citizen. You'll see his name in some other letters as Sylvanus, S-Y-L-V-A-N-U-S. This is a short form of that name. You'll see him in some other books of the, of the Bible. But he took Silas with him and left, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So let me show you where we're going here. This is, uh, this is not one of the great uh, moments, really, in Christian history. And this is one, an interesting event that Paul and Barnabas would have such a sharp disagreement that they'd part ways over this young man. So Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus. That's where Barnabas is from. They went there first, if you remember, on that first trip. And then Paul and Silas are going to take off here back through what's called Asia in that time. You actually see the provinces there. But it's modern-day Turkey, where they had gone with the first set of churches. So that's the direction that they're going to go. This is interesting because Barnabas is called this, his name means son of encouragement. And you can see him being an encourager. And you can see him saying, look, Paul, John Mark's learned his lesson. He's a young guy. He got scared on the first trip. But I think he'll do fine on this trip, and we need to give him another chance. And here's where you see Paul, his type A personality. And Paul's human like everybody else. Not everything Paul does is right. And one of the questions that I put on there for discussion, because some small groups use this and it's worth thinking it through, is what would you have done differently in this situation? So a lot of people look at this and say, you know, this is not really a model way to handle this. But I will, I will observe this. At the end of the day, they both continue to do ministry. And I'll tell you that the tradition says that Barnabas dies on Cyprus. In other words, he, and we don't know that that's from persecution. It may very well have been he got ill and he died. But according to the early church tradition, he dies on the island of Cyprus. And then you're going to see John Mark again in some of the letters of Paul. And later Paul is going to say about John Mark, he is very useful to me in the gospel. And so you're going to see this great reconciliation, and John Mark's going to become one of the young preachers that Paul trains and loves and sends out. And so in the end, you see reconciliation out of this. But right now, it just looks like a split between the two. And so they go off and they do ministry in different places. We're going to follow the Paul to see where he's going to go. He's going to actually go backwards from where he's been before. It said... Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra. If you remember, Lystra is the town that he went to that they stoned him, dragged him outside the city because they thought he was dead. And the disciples came and stood around him, and he gets up and hobbles off and goes on to the next town to preach. So he decides to go back. And so he goes back there to check on the believers. When he got to Lystra, there was a disciple there named Timothy. Has to be a young man. His mother was a Jewess, a Jew, and a believer. She was a Christian, but his father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, because they knew that his father was a Greek. So they traveled from town to town, and they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. Remember that Jerusalem conference, and they had the letter that says, no, you don't have to be a Jew? They took that with them, and they said, look, you're brothers with the believers in Jerusalem, and here's the letter to prove it. And the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. That's the thing we miss sometimes going through Acts when we see all the trouble that Paul has. We think, wow, the church isn't doing well. The church is thriving. The good news of the gospel is literally good news, a way to be reconciled to God, and Gentiles are coming into the church in droves. So where are we going here? Basically, Paul is working in this little area right here, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. Derby is about 60 miles away from Lystra. Lystra and Iconium are only about 20 miles away, maybe a good hard day's walk apart. And in Lystra, he finds this young man, Timothy. Now, Timothy, because his mother is a Jew, this is an interesting subject, because if you remember, in Acts 15, Paul went to Jerusalem, and he took a Greek with him, a guy named Titus. And Titus wasn't circumcised, and he took him to make a point. He said, he's a believer in Jesus Christ, he's not circumcised. You know, Peter and James and John, what do you say? Does he have to be circumcised? And they said, no, he does not. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. And so Paul was pretty adamant that you don't have to. And yet here he is circumcising Timothy. Well, according to Jewish law, they would not have recognized that marriage. So this Jewish woman marries a non-Jewish man. 
that's just that's a non-legal marriage to them. You married outside the clan, we don't recognize it. But if you have a child, your mother is Jewish, so you're Jewish. Now his dad's a Greek, so his dad would not have had him circumcised. That was not the custom if for Greeks or for Romans. And so here he is, a young man who's technically Jewish. I mean, the Jewish people would say he's a Jew because his mother's a Jew. So as they go into the synagogues, they're going to look at him and say, he's Jewish, but wait a minute, he's not circumcised. This is, this is kind of an apostate Jew. Now, if you came and you brought somebody who was a Gentile, they'd say, he's a Gentile. We don't expect that of him. And so Paul basically takes the expedient route and has uh, Timothy circumcised for his ministry. Timothy, by the way, is going to go on to become one of those great young preachers. He's going to stay with Paul for a while, and then Paul's going to send him out to do his own ministry. You'll see Paul writing 1 and 2 Timothy are letters. Paul's writing from prison to Timothy, where Timothy's out preaching the gospel. Timothy's going to have a great ministry. Tradition says he's going to die many years later in the city of Ephesus, and we'll visit Ephesus in a little bit uh, in... Uh, next couple of weeks, we'll get to Ephesus. And that's where Timothy eventually dies, uh, preaching the gospel and uh, being killed for it. The interesting lesson here is, is that sometimes, Paul would have argued, Timothy does not have to be circumcised to be a Christian. But you know what? Since we're going to go into synagogues everywhere and talk to Jews, it'd be very helpful because why have something to argue about? That's a very interesting principle. And it's a, a very strong Christian principle, and that is, just because I don't have to do something, maybe I will do that because it'll help the gospel. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, the letter Paul's going to write to Corinth, we're going to visit there on this little journey, he's going to say twice in chapter 6 and chapter 10, he's going to say, they're saying to him, everything is permissible for us, meaning we have so much freedom in Christ. And he's going to say, yes, that's true, but not everything is beneficial. He's going to say, not everything builds up. And that's the principle at play here. He's going to say, Timothy, you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. But you know what? We're going to go into synagogues, and those Jews there, because you're a Jewish young man, that's going to be a problem for them. So why don't we do this, even though we don't have to? And that's a strong Christian principle, and you'll see that play itself out over and over. So that's what they do. They leave there with Timothy. He's going to start picking up partners in the ministry. So they traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. You'll see those areas on your map. They're like uh, states or counties. I mean, they're provinces in the Roman world. Uh, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. That's the very northern part of Turkey. But the Spirit would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and saying, come over to Macedonia, modern-day Greece, and I'll show you in a second, and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Very interesting. Notice what's happening here. They, they, and then we. Luke joins the group at Troas, at this city of Troas. So this is, you see when it changes from third person to uh, first person, then here's Luke joining the crowd. So let's look at where they are. They basically have left Lystra, and they, Paul thinks we're going to preach in Turkey. This whole area is modern-day Turkey, but they don't. They make their way all the way down because the Holy Spirit guides them, and that's really interesting. This section is not as much about geography as it is about the leading of the Spirit. Paul has a plan. He wants to go throughout all of Turkey and start planting churches, but God has a different plan, and Paul hears that and moves on. So they go to this uh, city of Troas, which is a port. The city of Troas is about 30 miles south of the ancient city of Troy. Remember that story of Troy? Uh, Trojan horse, etc., happened uh, about 1,100 years before this. But that ancient city of Troy is only about 30 miles away from Troas. Troas is a port, and it's the port that you use to get to Macedonia. So it is fundamentally a huge trade route between Asia, Turkey, and the mainland area of Greece over here. So that's a major port, and that's where they pick up Luke, is in the port of Troas. It was uh, built in the 4th century BC, and Augustus, the Roman emperor of Jesus' time, 
gave it the status of being a Roman colony. So there'd be a lot of Roman people there, a lot of Romans in that area. From there, they're going to sail. They set out to sea, trailed straight for Samothrace and the next day to Neapolis. And from there, they traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. Now, Philippi is an area that I want to spend a little time on because Paul's ministry is huge in this area. Philippi is an ancient city because there are huge gold and copper deposits around Philippi. In the 4th century BC, so think 300s before Christ, 300 years or more before Christ, Philip of Macedon, Philip was a king in Macedonia. You see this area, it's now modern day Greece, but you'll see this area of Macedonia. Philip conquered it, named it after himself. Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. And so in the 300s BC, Alexander the Great conquers this whole area of the world. But this city was named after him. In the Roman era, this city's pretty famous, and it's, it's a big city. In the Roman era, in 42 BC, if you remember Julius Caesar from high school and Brutus and Cassius stabbed Julius Caesar and then they fled and uh, Shakespeare wrote this great play about it that we all had to read and hated, but that's what happened. And Brutus and Cassius flee and so Octavian and Antony go after him. Octavian's gonna become Augustus Caesar in the time of Christ. And so in 42 BC, their armies meet right here at Philippi and Antony and Octavian defeat them and kill them both. Then Antony and Octavian turn on each other. They decide, hey, there's only gonna be one man standing, one emperor of the Roman world, and Octavian wins in 31 BC. And when he did, he conferred Roman colony status on Philippi and settled a bunch of Roman veterans there. So it's a very Roman city from the time of about 30 BC up until this time, about 49 AD, so about 80 years later when Paul shows up there. So Philippi is a very Roman city. I wanna show you some pictures of uh, this city, Philippi. By the way, though, let me, show, let me point out one thing here while we're here. You notice this road, this little red line is a, is a Roman road. It's called the Via Ignatia, and it goes all the way across Greece. The Romans built so many roads like this and Paul and the early Christians are going to use these good roads to literally take the gospel everywhere. And I'll show you one of the, one of the remains of this road in, the, in our next segment. It's one of my favorite people standing at Philippi. And Philippi doesn't look like there's much left, but this is a really, they've excavated downtown Philippi. And that's what, she, that's what Laura's standing in front of is the forum. Let me show you that in a better picture. This is the remains of the Roman Forum. This is literally the heart of downtown. So this area right here, all that area would have had huge columns. You can see the remains of a lot of the columns. Huge columns all around it, big open area in the center. Around the area, you'll see some of the columns still standing along the side there. Those would have been covered and there would have been shops and things inside there. And in the middle would have been commerce and discussion. It was the center of the city. Running right alongside it, you can see these big pavers right here, this way, that is the Roman road. It literally runs right through town. And it's not as wide as you would think. It's actually pretty impressive that you've got a Roman road and all the pavers and stuff are still there. You know, over 2,000 years after it was built. That's pretty impressive. I have not seen that in Oklahoma City, all right? <laughs> I'm sure they were working on their roads all the time too. Detour, great, I got a flagman up ahead, you know? But basically that is the Via Ignatia, literally running right through the town of Philippi. And so this town of Philippi was a major area. It was a major city. And so Paul comes there for that very reason. He wants to do ministry in these major cities. Interestingly enough, when you get to a place like this, you begin to see from the ruins, you can start to put together some scenes. In the background, you saw this complex. That's a massive temple complex back there. And you can see a great deal of it still there. And they were refurbishing it while we were there. There's a theater in Philippi. And I mean, it's, it is a big city. And you can tell about how big a city was there because they would size the theater 
to be about 10% of the population, that about 10% of the population could be in the theater at one time. And so this theater is not huge, it's not the biggest that you'll see, but, and the top tier has been destroyed. But this theater would tell you this city is at probably 60 to 80,000 in that surrounding area. That is a massive city at that time. And so the ruins are very good. You can still see this area. This would have been a very popular place when Paul was there. There are great uh, remains. This is faded, but I mean, think of it. It's 2,000 years old, and it's still beautiful mosaics. You can imagine them with the, their original color. It would just really pop out at you. It was a big city, and they had, ah, this is interesting. Uh, every big city needs this. Anybody guess what that is? That's exactly right. That is the public restrooms. Uh, it literally is. And so that would have been the area near the forum where you would go when you get that many people together, you need some public restrooms. And so you'll still see the remains of, of all these features around this city. It's a very metropolitan area. Looks very different than the Jewish villages. So Paul's coming into the New York cities, the Chicago's, the Los Angeleses of his time. And he's taking the gospel into that environment. And that's really a different kind of place. There's a good view of the uh, forum with the temple complex in the background. And so this is where, this is Philippi. And when they get to Philippi, you can't just go into the forum and start preaching. I know we have this idea that, well, you just go into the forum, you stand up there and you start preaching. You could do that in Athens, but that's the only exception. Here, you get in there and you start preaching about some strange God, the authorities are going to pick you up. So what did Paul do? He needed some little home base. He would always go to the synagogue because you could go into the synagogue with the Jews, he could get up and speak, and he could start telling them about Jesus from the Scripture. And from there, he would kind of have a home base to spread the ministry. But there's no synagogue here. So on the Sabbath, it's, Luke says, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. In a town where there weren't enough Jews to have a synagogue, near the river would be a common place they would gather. Now, this is the Gangetis River. It's about a mile outside the city wall. So they walked that mile outside the city wall, and sure enough, they found a group of God-fearing people, Jewish people, worshiping there. So we said we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Uh, one of the reasons there's not a synagogue is for Jews, you need 10 men to form a synagogue. You need, it's called a minion. It's kind of a quorum. You have to have 10 Jewish men to form a synagogue to actually have a formal place of worship. There appear to not be many Jewish men here. There appear to be some believing women, and so they would gather here to pray. So Paul goes there, and he begins to preach to them. And one of those listening was a woman named Lydia. She was a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. You may remember Thyatira from the book of Revelation, but it's back over in Turkey. We just left. Paul kind of went by there. She is a manufacturer's rep for, uh, seriously, for a factory in Turkey, and she's selling into the Greek world, and she's sitting here in this huge town of Philippi. So she's a manufacturer's rep for these fine clothes, and she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us to do so. A couple of interesting things here. First of all, I want you to notice something really unusual. If you've read a lot of history around this time, one thing you're going to notice, there are not many women in the histories. And I want you to notice as we go through Acts how active and how many women you will see uh, talked about. And this is a great example. Here's Lydia. She's pretty well to do. She's probably a widow, almost certainly a widow, because women, single women didn't go into business. But if your husband died, you might take over the business. You have to provide for yourself. And that was respectable. And so she's probably a widow, and she is a businesswoman. She's representing this factory in Philippi. So she's well-to-do. She has a household. She has a house that's big enough to have guests in it. So she's pretty well-to-do. It's, un, it's very likely that she helps support the missionaries. It's people like that. If you remember, Jesus' ministry was supported largely by a lot of women that traveled with him and some that would give money just to buy food for the disciples as they traveled. But the prominence of women in the early church 
is uh, hugely countercultural at that time. It, the fact that we have this story in the Bible is hugely countercultural. Now, women in the first century in this time in the Greco-Roman world had more rights, not a lot by our standards, not even close, but more than Jewish women. In the first century, the Romans would allow, and this was a change, women could file for divorce, which they could not before that time. They could sign legal documents, which they could not before that time. And they could even hold some honorary public offices. That's, that's pretty liberal for the time. In fact, we'll see in some other areas inscriptions about women holding public office. So I want to dispel a little bit of the myths about Greco-Roman world that women were you know, kept in the back, cover your face, don't come out. It was very patriarchal, but it's a little bit different world. And so Paul says women are able to be spoken to. I mean, there are cultures where you, he couldn't speak to these women, but he can here, and so he does. And so the gospel is for everyone. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make is there's really a lot of countercultural things. One other thing I want you to notice here, I want to hit a little theological point for you. Notice it says here, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, isn't that an interesting way to say it? And there's a powerful lesson for us today because I want you to think about, when we think about spreading the gospel, we tend to think about we need to be very persuasive and we need to, if we'll have enough flashing lights and fog machines and stuff, that, hey, maybe you'll come to Christ. Right? That's a joke. But you know what I'm saying is we feel like it's on us. That's interesting the way that's worded. When the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. We need to be careful as we go spread the word. And I think this is great to know that it's not all on us. We're just called to be faithful, to go tell our story, to talk about Jesus Christ, to invite people to come to church, to invite people into our home, to speak about what faith in Christ means to us. We're not responsible for people coming to Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, opening their hearts to hear the message. And I think sometimes we, in particularly in evangelical America, forget that drawing people to Christ is partly us because God has said, I want you to go tell my story, but don't ever think that we're the ones doing it. It's God doing that work in people's hearts. I find that comforting because I don't bear the responsibility of them coming to Christ. I just bear the responsibility to tell them my story. And I think this, the way this is worded is very intentional. You'll see it over and over again that Paul says, it wasn't my preaching, it wasn't our presentation, it wasn't the pony rides we gave to their kids when they came to church, it was God opening their hearts to hear the truth of this message. Powerful statement. Question? Yes. Um, do you think that it was unusual for them to be interacting with women in general in this way? Or do we just think it's unusual because it is not written about? Yes, good question. This is countercultural for Paul, a Jew, to be interacting with these women. Now, they're not, it doesn't appear that they're Jewish women per se. Some of them might be, but Lydia does not appear to be a Jewish woman in that she doesn't have a Jewish name, she's not from a Jewish province, but she's a worshiper of God. In other words, she's a non-Jew who believes that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God. So it is a little countercultural for them to be interacting, certainly them as Jews. In fact, it's weird for them to be talking to Gentiles at all. So it's, you kind of have to get in your head about how radically different this is. We think of the gospel as for everyone. In that world, they didn't think the gospel was for everyone. If you'd said, hey, God has offered salvation, they'd think, great, all the white males are in great shape. Okay, I'm exaggerating, but you understand my point. They didn't think about everybody being accessible. Paul did. So it was a countercultural thing to do. It wasn't scandalous. I mean, there's nothing morally wrong with him doing it, but it's unusual. He would say, why are you preaching to women? They don't matter. He goes, actually, they do. You know, men, you know, he says... Uh, there's no Jew, no Greek, no uh, slave, no free, no male, no female. When he says that, what he means is the gospel is for everybody. Good question. Okay. A few logistics questions. When they went into these towns, uh, they went to the synagogue if there was one. If there wasn't, they found another place. How did they share the gospel? Was it, were they, was it always preaching? Were they doing teaching in homes? Yeah, great question. You've seen a couple of the sermons. I want to show you a great one next week. We're going to go to Athens next week. We're going to go to the Harvard 
and the Oxford and the MIT of the ancient world. He's going to go to Athens after this. And in Athens, he's going to preach a sermon that is brilliant, but I want to spend some time on that sermon. It's a great insight into how was he talking to Gentiles. You've already seen some sermons in Acts and how they talk to Jews, people who grew up as Jews. And they would, he would go into the synagogue and like, you guys are Jewish? Great, let me open to the book of Isaiah 53 and let's talk about the suffering servant and let me tell you who that is. That's this Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. So he would speak to them in ways that they understood. When he gets to Athens, it's really brilliant. I want you to see this sermon. It's really short, but it, uh, I want you to see it. It's really different. He takes people where they are and speaks to them in their world but always ends up pointing back to Jesus. Most of their teaching was done in larger groups to get people's interest. As people wanted to know more, they would talk. Then they would go into people's homes and they would speak in the evenings and they'd say, let me tell you some things that Jesus did. Do you understand what the Christian life looks like? And let me tell you, recite the Sermon on the Mount to you. Are you starting to see what this kingdom kind of living looks like? So it would have been teaching in small groups, but they typically started trying to preach to larger groups of people. Good question. Uh, when we got to Philippi, we didn't have any extra clothes with us because the airline had taken care of that problem for us. <laughs> that, is, that is true. United decided they would keep our clothes for a while, yeah. <laughs> uh, how much food and clothing did the disciples carry with them? That is a great question. How much food and clothing did they carry with them? Well, not much. What you can carry in a backpack, maybe. And so that means not much. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians says, I've been hungry, I've been cold, I've slept outside, I've been wet. It's, they didn't get to a village where someone would take them in. Maybe hopefully there are Jews there who would say, oh, your fellow Jews, I'm not a Christian, but Jews hospitality, come in and have a meal at my house tonight. And they would carry what they could carry, you know, just a, probably a little sack, and they would uh, wear what they wore. They would have, here's the basic attire in those days. You'd have kind of, uh, oh, it's kind of hard to explain, but basically think of a long white t-shirt. Comes down to about right here. Okay, that's your base layer. Uh, it's probably Gore-Tex, but anyhow, so you'd wear this long white t-shirt, right? Hematian, and then you'd have a tunic over that probably. You'd have a more of an outer garment. So that was kind of your underwear. And so then you'd have a more of an outer garment, and then you might have a cloak you know, kind of a cloak, think of it as a coat. You would sleep in it, you would wrap up in it, blanket. Think about a blanket, you know, over your shoulders. That's it. That's what you carried in a sack, maybe a little walking stick, that's what you got. And so without people giving them a little money, they could buy food, they didn't, Paul didn't take money, he worked. You're gonna see him working in places to earn money, so they buy some food so we can go on to the next town. So they really, I mean, that prayer, give us this day our daily bread, oh my goodness, they literally lived that out. And there would be days they didn't eat. And so they did have a lot of hardship. And uh, that's why when Paul says, I consider all those things nothing compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, you begin to see what real faith looks like. Uh, so that's a great question. They didn't carry much with them at all. Now we get to the more personal questions. Um, that public toilet... Uh -huh. was, was there running water or water of any kind to flush that away? Okay, we're going to get to the engineering questions. Yes. <laughs> the way it works, you can't see from that picture as well, but there are places that you really can see it. Uh, it particularly when we go to Israel, you'll see some great ruins of great public toilets. The Romans and the Greeks were, particularly the Romans, great engineers. Yes, basically, this is going to get a little graphic, but uh, let me clean this up a little bit. All right, so basically, you sit down, there would be water running under the toilet, and they're usually several together, and it's co-ed. I mean, it's just not what you think of, right? So there's these just little toilet holes together. There's running water underneath it, so, and they typically had open, uh, they weren't open air. I mean, that one looked like it, but that's because the walls weren't there, but the ceiling was open, so you get a little air, you know, kind of an attic fan type effect. But yes, there was typically water running. They would engineer it so they had water running under the toilets, under the public toilets. Okay, and finally, how did people know if they were circumcised or not? <laughs> you know, we need to talk about the questions you ask and the questions you don't ask. 
That is actually a, that's a great question. And uh, I don't have pictures here to show you because they, yeah, that didn't come out quite right either. In Greco-Roman cities, there was always a place called a gymnasium. It's where we get our word gymnasium. It was a combination public baths and exercise area and rooms for massage and places to run laps. It was kind of like a, kind of like a YMCA, sort of. And it was public area because you didn't have baths unless you were really rich in your house. But you'd go to the public baths. It's called the gymnasium. And I don't have... In Philippi, the ruins of that are not there, but there are in some other cities, and I'll try to pull one up and show you a gymnasium. They're pretty cool. Well, that's a Greco-Roman invention. In other words, Greek and Roman cities had a gymnasium and public baths, and you would exercise in the nude, and of course, when you went to the bathe, you would bathe in the nude, and it was a very social kind of place, and so men would know if you were circumcised or not. And that, by the way, is what made it really hard for Jews to enter Greco-Roman society. Because when you went in and you said, oh, I'm Jewish, but hey, you know, no big deal. I'm not going to say I'm Jewish. I'm just going to set up and be a merchant, and I'm going to dress like a Roman, and I'm going to act like a Roman. But everybody knew you were Jewish. There was huge pressure on Jewish parents. If you wanted to get ahead in business and all, don't circumcise your children. They'll just fit in better. Do you understand what I'm saying? But if you don't circumcise your children, that's the sign of the covenant of Abraham. You can't really be a Jew without it. And so they had to really face struggle between their faith and getting ahead in the world. And so the gymnasium is where you would know if men were circumcised or not. Thank you. That was a great question. All right. (laughs) So they go on in Philippi, they go back to the the city, and something weird happens. There's this little incident here that gets them into trouble. As they were going to the place of prayer one day, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. It's literally in the Greek, it's the python spirit. And that's because the god Apollo was thought to be, he he was the god, the Greek and Roman god, He's a Greek god, but the Romans uh, accepted that god as well, that he did a lot of things. He's god of the sun. He was god of a lot of things. But one of the things he's done is he killed the sacred python, and he had the power to give people the ability to see the future. And so if you were somebody who could predict the future, and there was a lot of this. uh, Actually, there's a lot of it. I watched a reality TV show about this this week. Somebody who is a predict-the-future kind of person, I thought. Dude, that is so old. You know, that happened here in Acts. Well, this slave girl would make a lot of money for her masters by being able to tell the future, right? And so it said she had the spirit of the python in her. She was, Apollo had given her this God-given ability to predict the future. So she starts walking around behind Paul and Silas and crying out, hey, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they're telling you how to be saved. Said she kept doing this for many days, and she really got on Paul's nerves partly because she's going around saying it, but she's actually undermining their message because when you said to them, the most high God, you know who they thought of? Zeus. Zeus is the king of the gods. Oh, they're going to tell you how to be saved and how to make Zeus happy. And Paul's like, no, we're not. That's not what we're talking about. So he gets irritated. I mean, the text even says so. Paul, having become greatly annoyed turned around and said to her, I command you, the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. So he takes the demon out of her, and then her owners go, hey, we just lost an economic opportunity. So when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, this is an interesting pattern, by the way, that you're going to see it over and over in Acts, and I'm going to argue you're going to see it today as well. They seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace, the place you just saw, that forum, that big open area. They dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates, and they said, these men are Jews. We don't like Jews around here. They're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten after they'd been severely flogged. Now, I don't know what you think severely flogged is, but severely flogged in the ancient world means bloody. I mean, very 
severely flogged. So they are bloody, backs ripped to shreds. And so they threw him into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he got those kinds of orders, he put them in the inner cell and put their feet in the stock. So he chains them up, just throws them in there, bloody as they are, chains them up. Interesting picture is of where they, people think they were. So this is a picture looking out at the forum where they would have dragged them, they would have chained them up and beaten them and flogged them. If you turn around from this picture, we're standing on the Roman road looking at the forum. If you turn around, there's a hill behind us that goes up from this. So I'm going to show you the picture as I turn around. That is where people think they were imprisoned, is right there in, in the area dug out into the hill overlooking that Roman forum. That they beat them there, dragged them, and threw them into the jail. Here's a picture inside the jail. I mean, it's just partial now, but you can see it's more like a cave back in under there. And then there's a little better picture. That, this picture was when we were there. It was overcast, but there's a great picture of the inside of that. And so they just throw them in there, chain them up, and leave them. And the magistrates leave them there. The interesting thing about this is that the opponents were motivated by money. In other words, Christians were costing them money. That's interesting. And they used political and religious prejudice to get them in trouble. In other words, they've broken no law whatsoever. In fact, what just happened to them is very unlawful. I'll tell you about it in just a second. But they've broken no law, and yet they've been beaten and thrown into prison. Why? What'd they say? These guys are preaching stuff we don't like. They're Jews, and they're not Romans, and they're just saying stuff that we don't like. So economic impact from Christianity and then accusations that play on political and religious prejudice. I'm going to argue that that is continuing to happen today. Is Christians in our world are getting in trouble, not because they've broken any law, but the opponents are using that kind of bias and prejudice against them. And that's what happened to them. So they threw them into jail. But an interesting thing happens here. Watch what they do. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing songs to God. Now, isn't that interesting? So they're beaten and bloody. It doesn't look like the ministry's going all that well at this point, but they're singing songs and praying about midnight. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake, which happens a lot in that part of the world. And the foundations of the prison were shaken, and all the prison doors flew open. And that's actually really common, because they were not very well made. And if the sill moved a little bit, the door would just swing open. And that's what happened. And so the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. That sounds weird to us. That is a normal Roman thing. You read over and over and over throughout the centuries in Roman thing, in Roman literature, that it is, it is noble to kill yourself to avoid dishonor and disgrace. Then your family is not dishonored. It's just part of the Roman code of honor. If he had not done that, and that they would have executed him, confiscated his property, and his family would have been outcasts. But if he kills himself, he preserves his honor. He has at least the good sense to kill himself because he disgraced himself. And so that's what he's going to do. He says, I failed. They told me to watch these prisoners. Prisoners are gone. I'm going to kill myself. But Paul shouts, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer says, you're kidding me. Calls for lights, rushes in, falls trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and he said, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your whole household. Interesting story. Now, he's asking them, what do I need to do to get out of this mess? When he says, what do I need to do to be saved? He doesn't know much. He doesn't mean saved in the way you and I think of it. The word saved, that word that's translated saved, is also translated healed and rescued. What he's actually saying is, I can't believe that you guys didn't leave when you had the chance to leave. How am I going to get out of this mess? And Jesus says, I'll tell you how to get out of the messes. I'll tell you how to get out of the mess that you're in for eternity that you don't even understand and how to get out of this mess. You need to believe that Jesus is Lord. In other words, you need to submit yourself to Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life. By the way, that's the answer you're going to see in Acts a lot when people say, what do I need to do to be a Christian? Oh, be baptized. Oh, just believe in Jesus Christ. They say, no, believe that Jesus is Lord. 
In Romans chapter 10, Paul's going to say, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, confess that with your mouth and believe he raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Philippians 2 is going to say, every mouth will confess Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord of my life. So I want you to see, you get these little insights into what they're preaching. They're not just preaching Jesus as Savior. By the way, you've seen anything in here about the cross? Not one thing. Now, I'm not telling you that they never said anything about the cross. I'm just saying that's not the major part of the message. Oh, they're going to tell people Jesus Christ died a death on the cross bearing your sins and mine. But then they're going to go talk about, and he was raised from the dead, and he rules, and you and I need to acknowledge him as Lord. I think that's good for us to hear because that's what they were preaching. And, and people said, you're right. I need to follow him. I need to do what he says. He is Lord of my life. And so that's what they do. He and his household believe. Well, the next morning, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer and said, you can release those guys. So Paul, the jailer goes in and told Paul, the magistrates have said that you, can, you guys can leave, go in peace. But Paul said, no, I don't think so. He said, they beat us publicly without a trial, and we are Roman citizens, and that is a big deal. We are Roman citizens, and you threw us into prison, and now you want to get rid of us quietly? No. Why don't you have them come down here and escort us out? So the officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were very alarmed. Well, they should have been. Roman citizens had rights. In fact, about 100 years before this, there's a guy named Varus, and in Rome, and he was the consul in Rome. Think of that as president for a year. And when he got through with his presidency, he went off to Sicily and he became proconsul. And the whole reason for doing that was to get rich. So he went out there and he oppressed people and he did all kinds of awful things. Uh, he would seize their property, he would tax them unmercifully. He's making a lot of money. And you think, wow, that's really bad. No, that's not actually against the law. But he did one thing that got him in big trouble. He crucified a Roman citizen. And so Cicero, if you remember Cicero, is a young lawyer, and he tackles him in Rome and brings charges against him. And this guy goes down, not because he killed a bunch of people, not because he extorted a bunch of money, but he actually crucified a Roman citizen, and he went down for it. And that's a president, an ex-president, if you want to think about it that way. This is a big deal. Roman citizenship meant a lot. And Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. And it's something you're going to see that Paul uses over and over again. So when they found that out, they were scared to death. They came to appease them and escort them from the prison, requesting them to leave their city. And Paul said, sure, in a little while. So after he left the prison and he went to Lydia's house and he encouraged all the brothers and he said, well, look who's out now, right? So be encouraged. You know, don't worry about this. God will take care of you. And then off they go to the next city. But the last lesson I wanted to give you out of this piece of our travel log is this. It's an interesting question about Christians using our civic rights to further the gospel. Because that's what Paul's doing. He and Silas are going to leverage the fact that they're Roman citizens to take advantage of every law they can to be able to spread the gospel. And in our culture, that's a that's really kind of a controversial question. How involved should Christians be in politics? How involved should we be? In fact, I'm going to give you a preview. I think the fall series in here that I want to do is something along the lines of, should Jesus run for president? I'd really like to talk about, uh, and we may need him at that point in the campaign. I'm not sure. But I want to talk about what is the role of Christians in the public square in politics, in education, in media, what does the Bible say we should be doing? Here's an interesting little hint that you see from Paul, and I'm not saying it solves the question, but he does not mind using his rights, I mean, as a Roman citizen, to leverage that to be able to go places he wouldn't have been able to go and to be able to say things he wouldn't have otherwise been able to say. And so Paul does a really good job of leveraging his civic rights to further the gospel. Okay? So that's Paul. One, this is one of the first templates you've seen of the gospel going into a truly cosmopolitan Greco-Roman city. And what you see is tremendous success 
It's not just Jewish people that listen to the gospel. It's everybody that says, look, those gods that you worship aren't true gods. This is the one true God. And you know that you are not right with God. Here, Jesus Christ came to bear the burden of your sin, and he is Lord of your life. That simple gospel message, hugely powerful. The church continued to grow radically throughout this period. So we begin to see a, uh, a small church here. Notice one other thing, small thing in the text. I just want you to notice the little things when you read. So look at this. Uh, when it was daylight, they said to release those men. You notice Luke doesn't get arrested. Luke's too smart to get arrested here. So it's only Paul and Silas, but they went out and look what he says. Then they left Philippi. According to tradition and according to this text, and you're going to notice that Luke's now going to switch back to third person, it looks like Luke stayed there. And that was Paul's method. And when they would go and they would start a church, typically Paul got run out of town, but he'd leave one of the other uh, guys that are with him, and they would go and continue to build the church and continue to meet with the believers. And so you'll see Paul constantly taking on believers and discipling them and leaving them in these cities that he goes to. And so Luke is going to catch back up with Paul in chapter 20 of Acts, but right now, since he is from Troas, I mean, he's not very far away. He's also a pagan. He's not a Jew. He's a doctor. He can make his living there. Luke is a physician by training. And so he stays there, joins the culture, and begins to the church to flower. And that'll be Paul's mechanism in all these cities. It's still a mechanism today for a lot of, uh, for a lot of missionaries. Is as you move along, for example, if you think about the way Billy Graham Crusades used to work when it came here, he would come in and he would preach, but they would recruit from all the local churches. Many of you may have done this to go pray with people and then to follow up with them and invite them into the churches. Well, that's what Luke did. He stayed behind and helped to build up the church in Philippi. So Paul, interesting lessons here about Paul relying on the Holy Spirit to open people's heart and Paul just being faithful to go where God sent him and tell the story God sent him to tell. And you know what? That method still works for you and me. Go where God sends you go through the doors he opens up, whether it's at work or on the soccer fields or wherever, and tell the story of what Jesus did to you and trust the Holy Spirit to open people's hearts. That message, uh, that evangelistic technique works as well today as it did then. Well, Paul's not content with Philippi. Once he's kicked out of there, he's going to go to the capital of the Greek world. He's going to go from the northern part of Greece down to Athens, and he's going to encounter the smartest people in the Greek world and I want to tell you what he said to him when he got there. It's really different than anything you've heard before. But that's what we'll talk about next week. That and maybe some more plumbing details. Wh whatever you want to talk about. I'll see you guys.